And so the topic is humility again, and it's a Christian man's humility. It's impossible to be humble if you're not a Christian, because not being a Christian is by definition being proud. Um, you have chosen to reject Christ. You have chosen to believe that you are righteous enough before God. Um, so that's why, really, to say a Christian's man humility is is almost uh, overly repetitious. But just to make that point very clear, I want to have us turn the same place we began last time, and that is Romans one. Just to try to drive this point is far home as we can my first watch messages for this year I said I would start with a Christian man's humility as Brandon mentioned last fall I introduced this and last month we began looking at the hallmarks of a humble Christian man we examined seven of them this morning we're going to do seven more But I just want to review our simple definition of humility, and that is having a proper estimation of yourself. That humility is having a proper estimation of yourself. And and we said that uh, humility is the central feature of a Christian man. It ought to be, at least, that a, a prideful Christian man is a contradiction in terms. Humility is the ultimate in Christ-likeness. It's, it's what causes every other part of your life to be Christ-like. Humility is the solution to every sin problem. And humility is the solution to every relationship problem. Every single one of them. And that, that's really the core and the central uh, theme. The last time I added to our definition of having the proper estimation of yourself, and we used Romans 1.1 to help us. Romans 1 verse 1, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, having been set apart for the gospel of God. And, and I, I just point this out, and, and again, we're thankful for the Legacy Standard Bible, which uses the proper translation of doulos, and that is slave. Uh, traditionally, it's been translated bond servant or servant. And, and why is that? Because English and then American history is tarnished with slavery. And so translators are really hesitant to use that word. But slave is the proper translation. And so we added to our definition. And we said this, and I'll, I'll give it to you again. That humility is having the disposition and attitude of a slave of Christ. Humility is having the disposition and attitude of a slave of Christ. And then we gave the opposite. Pride is having the disposition and attitude of a master over self. Pride is having the disposition and attitude of a master over self. I'm not going to go into these in detail, but last time we did seven hallmarks of a humble Christian man. Now I'll just list them for you. That first, he receives God's sovereign design. Second, he guards against unrighteous anger. Third, he properly assesses his importance. Fourth, he avoids unrealistic standards. Fifth, he's careful about self-promotion. Sixth, we said he strives to please God, not men. And seventh, he eagerly receives instruction. So that was our starting point. I want to have you turn with me to Galatians 5. We're going to go to a number of places in the New Testament this morning. Kind of really more of a, a little Bible study. And we're going to do seven more hallmarks of a humble Christian man. We'll take our first one from Galatians 5. Here's the first hallmark of a humble Christian man, or eighth, however you want to number them. He serves for others' sake. He serves for others' sake. Galatians 5.13 
For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. The freedom that Paul is speaking here is the freedom from trying to attain to salvation or trying to keep your salvation through good works. You can't do it anyway. That it's through... Uh, freedom in Christ that you're relieved of this impossible task of trying to please God with with good works, with doing good deeds, with outward piety, with being religious. That was the main problem in the churches of Galatia. They were trying to go back through the Mosaic law to achieve Christ likeness, to to attain to Christ. And in fact, the growing legalism that was prevalent in the Galatian church it was leading to an insistence that circumcision was necessary to be saved. This was upsetting the church. It was causing a rift. It was causing a spiritual crisis, calling into question salvation by faith alone and Christ alone. And so this was a, a major crisis. And in fact, in the, in the verse prior to this, Paul expressed his disgust with those who were perverting the gospel. He said in verse 12, I wish that those who were upsetting you would even mutilate themselves. I don't know how else to say this, but basically he's saying sarcastically, hey, if circumcision is the true way to godliness, then why don't you just go the whole shebang and cut everything off? That's what he's saying, if, that, if that's really the logic. And so Paul was warning against the spiritual danger of legalism But there is the other extreme as well. The other extreme, and he references this, is that was believing that freedom in Christ meant free from obligation, free from any sort of duty, free from any sort of need to be obedient. And what is the obligation? He says in verse 13, to serve one another, through love serve one another. That the real measure of being in Christ is not legalistic works of the law, not trying to do things to keep the law, but genuine love which serves. It's a, it's a guiding principle that we serve one another. In Paul's letter to the Ephesian churches, he connects salvation to service. The classic salvation verses in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. And we get that, we understand that, we love the doctrine of salvation. But right on the heels of that glorious declaration of the gospel, Paul uses an adverbial causal conjunction, meaning that this is now a result for a connecting word which joins at the hip the previous statement and the one that's coming to it, so that no one may boast, Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. A lack of service by a Christian man is incongruent with salvation. It's, it doesn't fit. It's, it's wrong. It just is the opposite. It's, it's uh, dark and light together. And a lack of service by a Christian man may be an indicator of a pride problem. And let me give you two ways you know this. It may be a pride problem internally. In other words, that a man doesn't serve others, doesn't serve in the church, doesn't serve in his family, doesn't serve others generally speaking, doesn't even think that way because he tends toward thinking about how serving affects him, not about how it might bless others. That his his filter is, what is this going to do to my life? What is this? How is this going to affect me? So you can see it internally. 
externally, it can be a problem. Now, I've experienced this blowback as a pastor more than I care to remember, but that's a man who might discontinue his service because he didn't receive enough praise. He didn't receive enough recognition. He didn't receive enough thanks. And I would say this, that the need for recognition is a major sign of prideful motives in serving. A servant is one who serves by definition without thanks. Jesus told a, a, a parable in Luke 17 where he essentially said the servant has no right to expect thanks. He's just doing his duty. Thanks is what you get for something extra. Thanks isn't what you get for doing your duty. You're called to be the chief servant in your family, that you care for them, that you look out for them, that you're delighting in serving them. The role of a man in the family is not to sit back and be served. That may be part of a blessing of being in the family, but you're, that's not your role. Your role is to be the chief servant. You're the chief servant of your wife. You're the chief servant of your, your kids, whether adult or not. And I get this question a lot from men. How can I just be a better family man? It's not a hard answer. Be a servant. Serve everyone. Serve. You know, well, what about my adult kids? They live in a different state. Call them up. Text them. Say, how can I serve you? That is an, a massive key to being a, a godly, humble man in your family and being a man that will be well remembered. Don't be the guy that the, the, your funeral is just kind of a relief for everyone around you. Put it this way. Leave a hole. Leave a gap. That when you're gone... A lot of people miss your service. That's, that's the kind of men we're called to be. You're the chief servant in your family. You're called to be servants in the church. If we did a quick inventory of what this means, what you would find primarily is that means serving each other. That's how we serve in the church. You serve Christ by serving one another. In fact, I can prove this from Romans 12. You don't have to turn there, but Romans 12 has this list of spiritual gifts, talents that are spiritually given that are used in the church. Let's just inventory them. The gift of prophecy, meaning proclaiming the applied word of God in a way that changes and sanctifies the saints. How about the gift of service? There's the obvious one. A direct gift which someone has this elevated yearning. They're the person that just very naturally serves. They don't have to get up and pray about serving. They just do it. The gift of teaching. That's instilling the knowledge of the word of God in those around you. The gift of exhortation. This is the insistence and the strong counsel that's given from one brother to another to follow Christ, to be obedient, to carve away at your sin tendencies. How about the gift of giving? The above and beyond provision for the preaching of the word, for saints in need, for the spread of the gospel, just a, a real yearning and desire to use your resources for that end. How about the gift of leading? That's providing vision and direction, organization, management, help in, in ways that others will follow. Or, or the gift of mercy. That's the, the tender interaction with the saints which demonstrates the love of Christ in very lowly and tangible and obvious ways. If you look through all seven of those, every one of them are for each other. There's no spiritual gift of standing in the corner of the parking lot and looking heavenward and mothering a prayer. That's fine if you want to do that. That's not said to be a spiritual gift because this is for each other. To say I don't serve in the church is to say I don't have spiritual gifts. And to say I don't have spiritual gifts is to say I'm not a Christian. So it's really incongruent with 
being a Christian man to, to have trouble serving. And so you serve for others' sake. It's, it's the best way to live. It's, I would say, the only way to live as a Christian man. Here's a second hallmark of humility. He seeks forgiveness at every opportunity. He seeks forgiveness at every opportunity. Go back with me to Matthew chapter 5, and we'll just jump to one text for every point here. He seeks forgiveness at every opportunity. Matthew 5, this is where we've been camped out on Sunday mornings for a number of weeks now. Proud men rarely, if ever, ask for forgiveness. They don't admit sin. They remain in a posture of self-protection that being right is much more important than being humble. Or if I could put it this way, the proud man has a how-dare-you attitude when confronted instead of a thankful and an eager heart, eager to be crushed in humility because it makes him more like Christ. Matthew five twenty three. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. This is the other side of the coin of Matthew 18. Matthew 18, Jesus commands the one who's been sinned against to go and speak to his brother. This is the other side of the coin. In in this case, Jesus is commanding that if you know your brother has something against you, you go to him. I want you to notice this. This is the most important thing to get in these two verses. Jesus doesn't particularly reference who's right and who's wrong. He just simply says your brother has something against you. He doesn't say whether it's legitimate, whether it's not legitimate. More often than not, it's going to be somewhere of a mixture in there that maybe there's some grains of truth to it. It's just that the brother has something against you. This is a man insisting on every effort in his own life be made to reconcile to another that he's going to make that effort. And this may mean trying very hard to hear the other brother, to hear where he's coming from, and to find even that little grain of truth in what he's saying, to have the humility to say, look, I know you've explained this to me three times. I'm still not seeing it. Can we try a fourth? I just want to see your viewpoint. But proud men stay in the posture of self-protection, self-defense. They refuse to put themselves in the vulnerable position of even attempting to see a, view, a viewpoint that someone else might have that's different than yours, attempting to see a situation from someone else's vantage point. And if this man condescends to making a show of looking like he's repenting of anything, he may use euphemisms for sin miscalculation, misjudgment, mistake. Well, don't miss this. (laughs) If you're making a show of looking like you're being somewhat humble, that is a far cry from actual humility. In fact, it's disgusting. Actual humility is broken and torn. Actual humility is happy and overjoyed to hear the rebuke of a brother who is making you more like Christ. But the... If I have done anything, somebody starts a sentence with that, you already know where their heart is. If you're making a show of what looks like to be something somewhat humble, that's not real humility. Humility is being crushed. It's being okay with being crushed. So how about this? Turn I how dare you into I would like to thank you. 
Very different attitudes. The humble man seeks forgiveness at every opportunity. You know, in the past few weeks, two different church members have sought my forgiveness for offenses I didn't even know about. And, and I asked, you know, you could have just kept it to yourself. And I said, no, I, I needed to acknowledge this. That's humility. And I love that. That's a, that's a delight to the Lord. Here's a third hallmark of humility. And I know none of these are easy. Humility is not easy. A third hallmark. He submits to authority joyfully. He submits to authority joyfully. And I think a good text for us here would be 1 Peter 2. In 1 Peter 2, Peter's going to give a general guideline that God has put authorities in place because that's his created order. Now, I have to, uh, I have to give a large digression here. Because contrary to some who teach unlimited authority, to be very clear, all authority has limitations. There's no such thing as unlimited authority in any sphere. All authority has a realm. It has a sphere in which it may operate under God. Uh, For example, the government has authority by God to protect the innocent, to protect its people in general, does not have the authority to tell me how to do my family or how to worship God. That's not the realm of the government's authority. The church has the authority to guide and regulate the righteous lives of her members, to confront sin and to preach holiness. The church does not have the authority to legalistically insist that every couple must go on a date night once a week or that you ought to change the oil in your car every 3,000 miles because that's a, a sign of righteousness. Now you're, you're getting into the realm of, uh, that's outside the church's authority. The husband has authority over his wife to lead her, to guide her, to be the leader of the family. You do not have authority to force her submission. There's not one place in scripture that says that you authoritatively make your wife submit. You don't crush her spirit in a domineering way. You don't ask her to sin in any way whatsoever. I have always maintain the position and I will continue to maintain the position that a woman submitting to her husband who doesn't want to go to church is in sin. That's not right submission. She ought to go to church. She ought to be with the body of Christ. And if he says, well, submit to me, no, you're asking me to sin. I'm not going to do that. So all realms of authority have a sphere. They have a limitation. There's no such thing as unlimited authority. If the government asks you to do something that's outside of their authority, you make a judgment call whether you want to do that or not. Uh, I'll give you an example. Marriage licenses. The Christians in our community condescend to allow the government to have that part in our lives because it's really hard for a woman to get her social security card changed. It's hard to get your insurance changed, your name changed without a marriage license. Does the government have any authority over marriage whatsoever? None. None. For that matter, it doesn't have authority over divorce either. That's a whole other subject for another time. No authority. We allow them to because it's convenient. But if somebody says, I want to be married before God, I don't want the government involved, fine. There's no problem with that because that is a choice they're allowed to make. Now, all of that said, under the proper boundaries which the institutions of government, the church, and the family operate, humility submits joyfully. Don't be the guy that goes through your whole life shaking your fist at all authority. And maybe even you have a good point a lot of the times. But A, nobody wants to be around you when you're like that. And, And B, is that the attitude God would have? Is that the attitude we have now? 
we have freedom again. We have the theme of freedom. And let me start in verse 13. Be subject for the sake of the Lord to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority. And then in verse 16, here's freedom again. Act as free people and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as slaves for God. So you do a self-check and every single person is under authority at some level. Do you have difficulty being told what to do? And you say, well, men aren't supposed to be told what to do. Are you married? Have you? (laughs) There are plenty of times where you say, in this particular situation, I'm just your slave. Tell me what to do. And if you're fairly passive, you love those moments. I love being told what to do. But if you have difficulty being told what to do, that's a pride problem. Do you have a temptation to say or think, I know when somebody gives you an instruction. If somebody says, can you grab that mop? It's in the corner over there. You saying, I know, what, is that, what purpose does that serve? It serves the purpose of saying, I knew that thing already. I just want to make sure you know how much knowledge I have. Do you protect yourself fiercely from any situation in which you might have to submit to someone else? I, I think a lot of business owners who mistreat all the people around them, I think they're business owners because they can't stand the thought of being submissive to someone else when in fact they're actually terrible to be around. Do you resent reminders? When somebody says, I'm just reminding you and you, I know, I knew about that. That's just pride. What's a better way to say it? Thank you. That's not hard. Do you resent correction even in the non-right and wrong situation? Do you resent somebody saying, hey, here's a different way to think about this? Be thankful for it. That's what humility does. Do you quickly resort to disrespect disrespect and dishonor when you're dealing with authority with whom you disagree? Do you resort to those things? Disrespect and dishonor. Or do you have a my way or the highway attitude which makes others fearful of contradicting you? If you're setting up a, a situation where if somebody gives a different opinion than yours and everybody around you goes, <gasps> then, they, then you've set up a situation where people are uncomfortable contradicting you. And that, that, that needs to not be. In the church, the writer of Hebrews makes this very familiar plea. Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, so that they will do this with joy and not with groaning, for this would be unprofitable to you. The man who won't submit joyfully to authority, he causes tons of problems, not just for himself, but for for other people as well. And and, and I want you to notice this. The text of Hebrews 13, 17 connects joy and submission together. And I'll connect them even further. I said specifically to submit joyfully, not just externally. External submission is, is nothing more than pharisaical hypocrisy. That's all that is. This is why Paul tells slaves in Colossians 3, 22 and 23, Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service, as men pleasers, but with integrity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord rather than for men. Any of you, and probably a lot of you here who, who have or have had employees, you can probably divide them in your mind into the two categories of the guys who are really genuinely doing what I ask them to do because they want to, and those who are doing it because I won't give them a paycheck if they don't. Those are two clear categories. We're to be in the first category. 
that you submit joyfully. And I, I will say this to my dying day, submission is one of the major keys of joy in the Christian life. To just let it be okay that heaven forbid, you don't have to be responsible for everything. You don't have to fix everything. You can sit back and if somebody is making a bad decision that you're not responsible for, you can sit back and go, well, this should be interesting. I guess I'll just eat my popcorn while I watch this thing unfold here. You don't have to be responsible for everything. And trust me, I am preaching to myself on this one. Um, you've heard of a type A personality. My wife says I have a type triple A personality. <laughs> that not only do I need to be in control, I need to control the people who are in control of the people who are in control. So I have to watch that really hard and I have to let it be okay. And just go, you know what? I This person is in charge of this. I'm going to let them make that call. I'm going to just be okay with it and, and submit to that. I, I like to tell this story, but a number of years ago, there was a, an object in our sanctuary that was rather ugly. And it just somehow ended up there. And, and uh, somebody came up to me and says, we need to remove that. I said, okay, I would agree. Well, why don't, why don't you just do it? You're the pastor. I said, no, I'm not in charge of ugly things in the sanctuary. That's not my domain. I'm going to submit to those who are in charge of ugly things in the sanctuary and let them make that call. Now, I did let that person know. I agree, it's ugly. But submission is the joy, to, is the joy of being a Christian. And can I say this? If you're a natural leader, I'm a natural leader. A lot of you guys here are natural leaders. Let it be okay. If you're going to lead, then go for it and lead. But if you're going to follow, then follow with the same amount of gung-ho spirit. Be the best servant. Be the best follower. Here's a fourth hallmark. He takes his sin extremely seriously. He takes his sin extremely seriously. And we have to get to some heart matters here. He takes his sin extremely seriously. And we'll use Acts 23, if you care to turn there. Acts 23. And just to set up the situation, the Apostle Paul is on trial. He's actually in the midst of many trials. And he's standing for the gospel of Christ. And in this particular trial, he's brought before the Jerusalem Council. This is the same council officially that condemned Jesus. A lot of the same men probably still on it. And I want you to keep this in mind because the context is everything. The Apostle Paul has been wrongly arrested. He's been wrongly accused. He's been wrongly questioned. Everything about this is wrong. Everything about it is unjust. Everything about it is completely opposite of how it ought to be. Acts 23 verse 1. Now Paul, looking intently at the Sanhedrin, said, Brothers, I have lived my life in all good conscience before God up to this day. Now, An interruption happens. And the high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to me? Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? Now, every one of you here as men, you can relate to this. You can relate to how it would feel to be publicly smacked in the face and you can't do anything about it. It's humiliating, it's angering, it's, it's unjust, it's dehumanizing, it's degrading. And you can, even just thinking about it, some of you, your blood pressure is going up a little bit. And you're like, not on my watch, that's not going to happen. And Paul had every right to point out that the law of Moses was being violated, that he was being punished before a verdict had even been given. He gets one sentence out of his mouth and whack! 
Leviticus 1915, no injustice should happen in court. No partiality for or against the accused. Deuteronomy 25.2 says that a guilty man should receive his punishment proportionate to his offense. But the offense hadn't even been dealt with here. It hadn't even been established. Paul has just begun speaking this case. Already he's being punished and in an unlawful manner, striking him on the mouth. That was considered the ultimate insult. You did not do that. You didn't even do that to a criminal. It was better to be lashed on the back. So all of us can understand Paul's ire and his indignation here. But look what happens next. Verse 4, But those standing nearby said, Do you revile the high priest of God? And Paul said, I was not aware, brothers, that he was high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. He just put himself on trial. He put himself on trial. I'll leave it to another time to debate whether or not Paul actually sinned because he was ignorant of the fact that Ananias was the high priest. But I want you to notice this. Paul didn't use ignorance as an excuse. He quoted Exodus 22:28 as the command he had just violated. Now, I, I think I've just made the case to you that everything that's happening to him right now is completely unjust. This is completely wrong. They ought to loose him and send him out with their apologies. But here is Paul on trial for his life, unjustly on trial, unjustly struck in the mouth publicly. And his concern is not with how horrible Ananias is, how unjust the Sanhedrin are, how they're the same people who crucified Christ, how everything they do is a, is a sign that they're all fake, they're all hypocrites. His concern turns immediately to how he has violated Scripture, and he doesn't condemn Ananias for having them struck. He basically says, I have violated Scripture because I broke the law. I broke God's law. He viewed, you ready for this? His sin as so much bigger than Ananias's that what Ananias did to him was irrelevant at that point. What he did was big. The proud man views his own sin as small and the sin of others as big. He might even agree to think about and acknowledge sin, but it's always, uh, it seems to be, as long as the other person does as well. Sure, I'll, I'll make a deal with you. Do you see any deals here? Did Paul say, well, you drop these silly charges and I'll apologize to the high priest? No, his total focus was on the fact that he broke the law of God and that's all he was concerned with. He didn't say, well, I would take 50% responsibility, but the fact that I'm here put me in this situation, it wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for that. He just takes 100%. The humble Christian man knows his sin tendencies. He's sensitive to them. And he abhors the idea of having sinful blind spots. Hate the idea of having a sinful blind spot. And be thankful to any man who will shine a light on it. Here's a fifth hallmark. He responds patiently to others. He responds patiently to others. I asked a church member once, just randomly... What do you think is the scripture passage that I, as a pastor, turn to the most? And they said, correctly, Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. So let's turn there. Your Bibles are probably already bookmarked there. This is so familiar, and I think that it's worth visiting just over and over again. The last two verses of Ephesians 4, it applies to every situation that we possibly can. It's good for us to do this. How do you combat a tendency that maybe you have to be inflexible or to be 
very, very dogmatic about preference issues. To become easily angered, irritated when your plans are disrupted, when your schedule is disrupted. To sacrifice the five minutes that somebody made you late for a lifetime of pain by continuing to rail against somebody because they stole five precious minutes from your life. Is being on time a good thing? Yes, that's another topic for another day. But what's the trade-off? How do you combat a tendency to emotionally crush those around you when something isn't going the way you want it to? And there's lots of ways to do that. Some men do it outwardly. Some men, some men do it by inward pouting. And, and I'm amazed how big grown men literally kind of stick their lip out. You know, they're like that. Like, really? Stick that thing back in. I'll stick it in for you is what you feel like saying, right? How do you combat this? You combat it with Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and anger and wrath and shouting and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Instead, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, graciously forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has graciously forgiven you. I try to find an excuse to get back to these two verses. I, uh, in Bible Training Institute, these are the two verses we use for our Bible study methods example. There's a rich, rich depth to these two verses, but on the other hand, they're not rocket science either. These are, these are good verses for us. They're not rocket science. Verse 31, stop doing this. Verse 32, do this instead. Stop and start. Verse 31, stop being angry. Stop being bitter. Stop being wrathful. That speaks of the internal attitude of the heart that believes that someone else deserves more punishment than you do. Stop shouting. That's a word that means causing clamor, escalating conflict. Stop slandering. That means harming someone's reputation. And stop showing malice. That's open hostility towards someone. And instead, verse 32, start being kind to one another. Tender-hearted. It means you're working on your heart, not just fake outward actions. Any, any man can put on the used car salesman, sorry if there's any used car salesman in here, can put on the used car salesman, you know, fake smile and handshake. Hey, how's it going? And then the minute you turn around, ah, oh, that guy, that's not real. Tenderhearted is a genuine heart toward that person. Forgiving one another. How? In the same fashion God forgives. Now, I, I want to be clear about this. As men in particular, there are times to what I would call heighten your response. To show an intensity of response in a situation. There are times for action. Now, for example, when your small child says no to his mother right in front of you, you don't say, that's inappropriate, let's talk about it. No, you give swift and painful judgment. You know how you know it's correct when it's a little kid when the first thing he does is this for 30 seconds. Then you know it's good enough. But that's not a spontaneous reaction. That's a thought out plan. You see the difference? There is a time for swift action, but that's because you've already known that's what you're going to do. There is a time for swift action. That's not what I'm talking about. That aside, I want you to notice something about Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, and that is the context. The context is the interaction of the Holy Spirit with the believer. Look at verse 29. Let, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such as a, a word as is good for building up what is needed, so that it will give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. 
It grieves the Holy Spirit when you gossip. It grieves the Holy Spirit when you slander. And trust me, I've been in the church long enough to know that that, uh, that myth that women are the gossips in the church, that's a myth. Men gossip just as badly. Trust me. It grieves the Holy Spirit when you gossip, when you slander, when you corrupt others with your tongue. But don't lose the context that the Holy Spirit's interaction with the believer is hot off the presses in verse 30 when Paul says in verse 31, let all bitterness and anger and wrath and so forth be put away from you. This is a passive verb, let all, meaning someone else is doing the action to you, for you, on your behalf, with you, alongside you. Who is that person in context? It is the Holy Spirit. Verses 31 and 32 represent a conscious decision to walk in the Spirit, to be delighted to be Spirit-led in your responses. I think every man should write his own eulogy and write it from the standpoint of his family's viewpoint. You hear eulogies. I've been to funerals where you know it's a pack of lies, right? That this is the this is the uh, sanctification I like to call it of somebody who has died, and now you don't want to be real. You don't want to say, you know, actually the guy was a jerk, and everybody around him is relieved that he's gone. You know, uh, you walk by the casket as they do, and oftentimes in in Midwest funerals, and you, and you walk by the casket, and there there's a, that with this person that just made everybody miserable, and there's that that false grief, and half the people are being real. They walk by and say "Sayonara, buddy," and they're just glad and happy. Write your own eulogy. Could you genuinely say, on behalf of your wife, on behalf of your kids? Every time there was trouble, my husband or my dad was the one who was calm. He was the one who was patient and measured. He was the one who who was the eye of the storm. Could you say that? Or would it be more honest to say that the people around you fear every time you're disappointed? Every time something doesn't go your way? Every time you don't get your way? Do they have confidence on the positive side that, that, yeah, you might issue a legitimate correction, maybe even a rebuke, but you're not going to go nuts with anger. You're not going to punish everyone around you with, with some sort of quiet, passive irritation. And you all know what I'm talking about. You all have your different flavors of it. Be known as the man who's measured. Be known as the man who everybody doesn't have to fear your response and fear your reaction. doesn't mean you might not take a hard stand. But don't be the guy that everybody, as they say, walks on eggshells around. Here's a sixth hallmark. He's content, he's content with his condition, rather. He's content with his condition. And what I mean by condition is your situation, your place in life, your current challenges. I, I've always told my kids, yeah, if you want to aim to buy a big house, that's fine. Just remember, there will always be a guy with a bigger house. Always. You want to have a nice car? Just the minute you think you have the nicest car possible, somebody drives up in the $400,000 Maserati and you go, oh, there's always somebody. Be content with your situation. Turn with me to 1 Peter 3. I know we've been to 1 Peter already, but 1 Peter 3, the first six verses are written to wives, but there's plenty of application available to all believers. In verses 3 and 4, Peter's going to describe someone who's content in the situation that he, or she to be precise in the context, finds himself in. First Peter 3, 3 and 4. 
Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on garments, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible quality of a lowly and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. This is an admonition to wives that the internal attitude of the heart is more important than anything external. And and contextually here, the braiding of the hair, the wearing of gold jewelry, this was a cultural uh, uh, tendency for women to display their wealth in their hair. It's not that that braids are somehow unholy. It's that they would braid the jewels that they own. It's sort of like parading their their, uh, family wealth literally in their hair or in their clothing. It was, a, it was a way of boasting. And Paul says, or Peter says, don't do that. This was, this was to offset any tendency by a woman to use attention-getting tactics, to draw attention to herself as the center of attention. Proverbs 27, 1 and 2, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what the day may bring forth. Let a stranger praise you, and not your own mouth, a foreigner, and not your own lips. That's the same concept, not bringing attention to yourself. This is another form of attention getting, boasting about what you think you might do or things you have done. This is indicative of a heart of a man who desires to appear greater than he is. Instead, be content with your condition. Now, I borrow this word from the wonderful author Lou Priolo. And in his book, Resolving Conflict, I shared this with our leadership team the other night. Lupriolo establishes the prerequisites for resolving conflict in a biblical manner. And he has four chapters on them. And the first chapter is humility. And he gives four definitions, not of humility, but of pride, to kind of, to kind of go around this. And, and I won't belabor the point. But listen to the word he uses in three out of four of them. The first definition, pride is the delusion that our achievements are primarily the results of our own doing. That boasting is a sign that, that God is not receiving the glory he ought to in your life. If you're tending to boast, it means you care more about my glory than God's glory. But then in the last three definitions of pride, he uses the same word three times. Pride is esteeming ourselves above and beyond the condition and proportion that God has appointed for us. An obsession with the thought that I'm better than where I am in life. You ever met the delivery truck driver who knows everything about politics? That's fine to be a delivery truck driver. That doesn't qualify him to be an expert on politics. The third definition he gives, pride is the desire to be esteemed by others above and beyond the condition and proportion that God has appointed for us. This is a curse in the church in particular. That someone wants to do something they're not well gifted in and they believe they inherently deserve to do it. Anytime somebody comes to one of our elders or to me and says, look, I I should do this, I, I deserve to do this. That's a good way to say, no, you don't. Just the fact that you had to say that. Um, usually if somebody says they deserve something, what does it mean? That they don't, right? And this fourth definition, the word again, pride is the desire to exalt ourselves above and beyond the condition and proportion that God has appointed for us. This is the overly ambitious drive to elevate yourself beyond the limits and capabilities that God has appointed for you. And, and listen, as men, we're, we're all for hard work. We're all for applying ourselves to better your situation in life. And I think I could prove this principle from Proverbs. But first and foremost, you're called to contentment with where you are, right? It, contentment is not having what you want, it's wanting what you have. That's, it's a very simple concept. 
And I, I think some of you might even be thinking, I, I feel like this is something women struggle with the most. I, I, I don't think that that's the case. I've seen it in both genders. As a pastor, I, this manifests itself in numerous ways. This is a list of things that I've encountered with men in a church setting. Dressing in ways clearly designed to create a second look instead of simply being clean, neat, and reasonable. I'm not going to give you a, a legalistic definition of how you ought to dress, but if you're doing something that's just purely to draw attention to yourself, wh- where's that coming from? Bizarre behavior to get people to focus on you. Continually steering a conversation to self, having difficulty balancing listening with talking. Have you ever tried to explain the problem to someone and at one sentence in they say, I know, you know, last year I, and you're like, I, you know, I was sort of trying to get your help with my situation. Uh, being an expert on everything and having difficulty saying this sentence, I don't know much about this subject. That's difficult. How about an inability to listen to someone else's difficulty or trial without quickly turning to yourself, turning the conversation to yourself? And maybe a story in your life is helpful and encouraging, but it's not a conversation that's clearly somebody asking for help. It's not about you. It's about them. Instead, be content. Apply what Paul said in Philippians 4. I learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I learned to be content. That's very, very encouraging because it means you can. I have told this story before, but I, this just boggled my mind when I, literally in, in counseling a, a, a woman just had a tantrum, like a full-on three-year-old crying and, and, and trying to get attention. And her husband's right there just kind of calm as a rock. And she's crying and just saying how abusive and mean he is because she had had her allowance from her husband cut back to, to just... Just thirty thousand a month. What am I supposed to do with it? I had to sell three horses. I had to get rid of this and that. And she was genuinely, and I'm just sitting there trying to keep a straight face. And and I just asked her, "Are you a Christian?" And well, yes. I mean, you know, my husband's supposed to do this and that. And I, this poor guy, he was like, if he had had a gun, he would have blown his own brains out right then and there. <laughs> he would have gone, sweet relief, here I go. That's serious. And you say, well, that's a ridiculous example. What about in your life? What is that thing that you will not be happy until you have it or until you achieve it? Let go of it. Let me give you one more. And, and I would say this is the most important one today. The seventh hallmark, he defaults to thankfulness. He defaults to thankfulness. That being grateful for every little thing is a way of life. It's a cultivated mindset. And I'm, I'm running out of time, so I'm going to go a little bit faster. In First Thessalonians 5.18, the Apostle Paul commands us to be thankful for everything. It's pretty simple. Be thankful for everything. It's a, it's a humility of constant thankfulness, constantly seeing the good that God does, constantly being thankful even for pain, for trial, for discipline. He's just thankful for everything. In Isaiah 38 and 39, it's a fascinating story of King Hezekiah. He's terminally ill. Isaiah the prophet has been sent to him to tell him, he's, set your affairs in order, you're going to die. But Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. He wept greatly in prayer. 
Isaiah 38.4 Then the word of Yahweh came to Isaiah saying, Go and tell Hezekiah. Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says Yahweh, the God of your father David, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. And what did Hezekiah do with this extra 15 years? We know one thing. Isaiah 39 records that when the king of Babylon came to visit, Hezekiah spent all of his time giving a giant tour of all of Israel, boasting about all of his treasure and all the stuff that he has, all the great things he's done and accumulated. And because of this, Isaiah came back. Hear the word of Yahweh of hosts. The days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have treasured up to this day will be carried to Babylon. Nothing will be left. Now, what does that have to do with gratitude? 2 Chronicles 32 gives a commentary on this episode in Hezekiah's life. Just a small commentary, but it's packed. 2 Chronicles 32.24 says, In those days Hezekiah became sick to the point of death, and he prayed to Yahweh, and Yahweh spoke to him and gave him a a miraculous sign. Remember, that's that's the day that the shadow went backwards. But Hezekiah gave no return for the benefit he received. Because his heart was proud. Therefore wrath came on him and on Judah and on Jerusalem. He gave no return. Have you heard the old fashioned phrase, let's return thanks? That's prayer. It's it's returning thanks to God. When a man is not defaulting to thankfulness, this betrays an inner attitude that he believes he deserves what he has. He deserves what he's received. He deserves the good thing that's happened to him. He's not driven to be thankful for what he receives. Or let's just take it to the, to the opposite extreme. The truly thankful man is astounded that he has anything good in his life. He's just blown away that, wow, you, you not only gave me a, a, a good wife, you gave me a wife, period. You gave me this, you gave me that. Or even worse, a man who's not driven to be thankful may be in the habit of complaining that he deserves better. He may tend toward the critical, toward discontentment. And by the way, this is just absolutely contagious. That if I'm discontent, I'm going to make sure all the men around me are just as discontent as I am. He doesn't gravitate toward frequent thankfulness to God and to others. And let me give you a little example. This is a very small example from my own life. You know what I'm thankful for? I'm thankful for you. And I'll tell you why I'm thankful for you. Because I wouldn't get to share these truths if none of you showed up to eat burritos. I mean, that's you are here this morning. You could be mowing your lawn. You could be sleeping in. You could be doing something fun. But I am thankful to you. And I, I, I try every opportunity I can um, to be thankful. And that is not something that's pious on my part. I genuinely am sometimes shocked that as many of you show up as you do. What in your life that seems mundane, that seems routine, that seems expected, can you be thankful for? What can you be thankful for? Every little thing. And I think a good exercise for you is to, is to simply decide to be more thankful. Be thankful, as I was the other day, that I looked in my mirror before driving away from the gas station to see that the nozzle was still in my gas tank. I was so, I just, thank you, Lord. I could have driven away, ripped the thing off, paid all the money, and you would have had a good laugh, and it would have been fine. But you just had me do that one glance. Have a life of thankfulness. And I want to tell you... I want to tell you one more thing here, and I think that this will be worth the price of breakfast, even if you didn't have breakfast, because what I'm going to tell you has to do with your marriages, your kids, parents, however you want to put it, closest relationships. 
in your marriage, romance in terms of pleasing your wife, expressing your fondness for her, I think a lot of men try to do this by rote. Well, I got to put a reminder on my calendar. I got to I got to do I got to remind myself. You know, a much more organic way to be romantic with your wife, that's just to cultivate a thankful attitude for her. To be thankful for her. And and listen, the reason this is so valuable is because thankfulness is what drives expressions of love. Did you catch that? Thankfulness drives expressions of love. <coughs> A man who doesn't give expressions of love to his wife very easily probably isn't cultivating a daily habit of being thankful for her. And, and you might even be one of the guys secretly saying, but I don't even like my wife that much. She's a difficult person. Well, then you start working on being thankful for her. Because I can guarantee you, you can find 10, 12, 20 things about her that, that are more of a blessing in your life. And if you'll cultivate that attitude of thankfulness, eventually you'll want to express it. How about with your kids? And it doesn't matter, adults or, or kids in the home. If you tend to be one of those kids, one of those dads rather, whose kids will grow up saying dad was pretty distant and not very affectionate, that's a lack of thankfulness. That, that's, not, that's not you as a man saying, well, I'm just manly, I'm just built that way. No, that's a lack of thankfulness. How would you be with your kids if you had one more day with them? How would you be? Would you be distant? You would, you would be all over them. You treat your kids, whether they're in their home or in your home or not, like today is the last day you have with them. And how about your closest relationships? Thankfulness is what drives deepening those relationships, serving one another. Thankfulness is the key. It drives expressions of love. It drives expressions of love. The Lord Jesus in his time on earth was completely humble, completely submissive to his Father in heaven. He drove attention away from himself while proclaiming the heavenly truth that I am the way, the truth, and the life. But he drove attention away from himself. I shared this with our leadership team the other night, but just listen to how often Jesus uses words like not and nothing of himself. The Son can do nothing from Himself. I can do nothing from myself. I do not receive glory from men. Not to do my own will. My teaching is not mine. I have not come of myself. I do nothing from myself. I have not even come of myself. I do not seek my glory. I do not speak from myself. The word which you hear is not mine. That's just a short sample. If the man, the one man, the singular man who has ever lived, who could say, point everything to me says not and nothing concerning himself. How much more should you? Stay with me. I read this quote to our leadership team and it's worth it. Andrew Murray wrote in his book, Humility, listen to this. Jesus calls us to be servants of one another and that as we accept it heartily, this service too will be a most blessed one, a new and fuller liberty from sin and self. Did you catch that? Humility is liberty from sin and liberty from self. At first it may appear hard. This is only because of the pride which still counts itself something. If once we learn that to be nothing before God is the glory of the creature, the spirit of Jesus, the joy of heaven, then we shall welcome with our whole heart the discipline we may have in serving even those who try to vex us or anger us. That is just a whole different level. Can I just 
finish with this. Humility is not something that you act out. Humility is an attitude of the heart that then is acted out naturally. That's why it's the key to everything. It's the central feature of a Christian man. It's the ultimate in Christ-likeness. It's the solution to every sin problem. And it's the, re- the solution to every relationship problem. Every one of them. Humility is it. Well, we're halfway through. We'll do 14 more of the next few months. How's that sound? Let's pray. Our Father, I believe with all of my heart that every man and boy in this room desires Christ-likeness. And I, I pray, Lord, that that's what we seek. And I pray we would seek to humble ourselves before you, to be lower and lower and lower and to exalt you as higher and higher and higher, to follow the example of John the Baptist that Christ must become more and he would become and, and John would become less. Lord, every man here I know has had the word of God pierce a portion of his heart this day. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be those that apply what we hear to genuinely do some self-reflection and some prayer about those blind spots that we know we have just had exposed in this past hour. Help all of us, Lord, myself at the very top of the list, to relegate pride to a dusty relic that we sort of remember dealing with. Help us to be humble before you, to become less, and to be servants of all. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.